Okay, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your generous blessings that your Son Jesus taught us about in the Gospel reading today, that the kingdom of heaven isn't fair, uh, which is good news for us. Because we don't pay what we owe, you pay instead, and, and in return, you give us generous gifts that are beyond our imagination. Be with us today as we're talking about one of those gifts, the gift of your son's body and blood uh, that we receive here when we gather as your people. Um, may this conversation deepen our knowledge of this gift and our appreciation of it so that we can better live in a spirit of thanksgiving for the generosity that our Lord shows to us each and every day. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, just to do a brief review for those of you who maybe weren't here last week. Uh, last week we kind of went through an overview of all of the pieces of the service of the sacrament. Um, and it worked out nicely because last week happened to be our, our fullest liturgy Sunday. So we kind of went through what we had just done in church. If you, I'm not handing those out again because the focus of the class today is a little different. If you do want that handout that I had that had kind of a, it had a historical summary and a theological summary of each of those pieces, I would be happy to send that to you. Just let me know after class or send me an email and I will uh, get you a copy of that. Today, um, we're going to focus on what it actually is. So last week we were kind of tracing the movement Right, we talked about how it's like a procession from earth to heaven. Right, or more accurately, it's Christ bringing heaven to earth at the altar. And so one of the images I gave you is, think of one of your loved ones who's died in the faith. And when you go to communion, when you go to communion, you are joining them at the table of the kingdom, the, the feast in, in God's heavenly kingdom. Um, and that's what we mean. We talked about the formulaic sayings at the end of the proper preface where it says, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. Right? And all the company of heaven is all of the saints who have died in the faith that precede us. And, and at, at some point, unbeknownst to us but known to God, it'll be also us. Right? Um, and that is sort of the image of all of the people gathered around the throne that we read about in Revelation who are singing to God. The, the reading that we have on All Saints Sunday. Right? And the reason it is on that Sunday is it's a reminder to us of that reality, right? That this is the eschatological feast, the end times feast, that is going to last forever in the kingdom of heaven. And this is our foretaste of that feast to come. Okay? Yeah? I have a question, Pastor. Yeah. Nothing to do with this, but it sort of does. <laughs> Go for it. When we say. Um, when Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. Yes. And yet you say our loved ones are in heaven. Uh-huh. So I don't understand where how that works. How that works. Sure. That's fair. So uh, there's a lot of confusion about this, partially because of the language and partially because our language is not really adequate to explain what happens after we die. Right? A lot of the ways that we talk about things are dependent on the idea of time being a thing that goes in like a line. Right? Um, after death, when we enter eternity, that's not really the same, right? So, um, how does God experience life in the in this world currently? Does He see it like we do, one day at a time, or does He see everything all in front of Him all the time, whenever He wishes? Right. So you can see that. 
when we get into the realm of the eternal, we're, we're by nature of it being eternal, going to have a hard time really articulating exactly the way it's going to be. Right? So we tend to, um, as a result of that, we tend to... Um, <laughs> Is it, am I not loud enough? I'll try to Okay. Um, as a result of that, we tend to fall short of our own explanations, and so we typically try to rely on what the Scriptures give us. Uh, and one of the things that the Scriptures teaches is we have essentially, we understand it as like he tells the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. And so we understand that to be um, not bodily, right? So that in the time in between... Your soul or your spirit is in heaven with God as soon as as soon as you die on the earth, but it, your your it's not your resurrection isn't fully realized until the last day, and so when our bodies will be raised imperishable, as as Saint Paul says. So in the intermediate time, we understand that like that you are with God in heaven, but your full resurrection does not happen until the last day. Right, so that's why the uh, or the like the judgment, the accounting of all of creation is also not yet complete until that day. Does that kind of answer your question? Well, but if you're there now, yeah. And if if he's going to come to judge you, sure. you might like, remain there. Maybe. So say that question again. <laughs> if you say we the, the spirit goes to heaven uh-huh. when you die, but bodily you're not yeah then when he comes to judge the living and the dead will your body then go no matter what or will you'll you'll be sort of you'll be fully restored so for christians there's no we don't we don't consider like the body and the spirit things that are meant to be separated but because of sin they have been separated so, um, in faith, you've been given a new spirit, right? The Holy Spirit has been given to you, so you now possess a, a right spirit, a new spirit in God. But your body is not yet redeemed. So when Paul talks about the, the spiritual warfare that goes on within you, what does he use, what term does he use to refer to the old sinful self? He calls it the sinful flesh, right? Um, because your body is not yet fully restored in the redemption of Christ, and we understand that that is what will happen on the last day, whether you have died or whether you're alive when Christ returns. It's the same sort of full restoration and reckoning of creation. Um, so we also understand that, that that restoration and that redemption is not that God's going to come down from heaven, destroy the earth as it is, and remake a new one. He's going to restore a new heavens and a new earth, right? And we understand that to mean the full restoration of creation as it was intended to be and more in Christ. So, yeah. Completing the question, what about the flip side? Those who aren't going to heaven in the interim before Judgment Day, where are their souls? Do they go straight to the Um, That's a good question. What did Dave say? So his question was the reverse. It was, um, what happens if you're not a believer? Do you... Not go to heaven or not go to hell until the day of judgment, um, and you're in some sort of in between place, or not. Um, I'd have to look that up. I don't think we would say you go to hell right away because the day of judgment is called the day of judgment for a reason. 
as far as the state that you'd be in until then, again, this is where it's tricky with time, right? So think of it, maybe think of it this way. How many of you have ever been in a car ride longer than six hours? Okay. One of the strategies that you can utilize to not realize it's that long is go to sleep. And you'll go to sleep and then you wake up and then maybe other than the crick in your neck, you don't really have any sense of the passage of time. And so that's even within time that you can do something like that. Uh, we don't really know what the state of, of being would be for somebody who has died. There are only dead people know that. Uh, but we have a pretty clear understanding that they're no longer bound by time because they've entered into eternity. right? Because hell is also an eternal place. So these are the sorts of things where it's really fun to kind of speculate about the exact nature of how it's going to work, but we don't really know. Partially because I think even if God explained it to us, it might be beyond our ability to understand by virtue of the fact that we're finite creatures within creation, and we're talking about something that is now outside of the creation that we currently belong to. Does that make sense? Yeah. What if you've been cremated? Then what about how can the body be restored? Okay, this will be the last question I have on this topic, just because, <laughs> not because they're not great questions, they are great questions, but because, the, like, I don't want to do you the disservice of talking extensively on a topic that I have not prepared for. <laughs> um, but that is a good question. So the question was about what about cremation, right? Um, and there's varying opinions on this, but uh, my understanding is the scriptures doesn't speak directly to this. It just talks about a bodily resurrection. And so people extrapolate from that that you shouldn't cremate. Um, but if you've been dead for a thousand years and Christ hasn't returned, there's not much difference to what's left than when you're cremated, right? Now, I would say if you do cremation, don't do weird things like go and dump the ashes in the ocean somewhere. Um, just because, like, obviously, can God recollect your ashes from anywhere in the universe? Of course he can. But it's also not really treating... That's that. Those traditions stem from places that believe that your body is something you leave behind. And we don't believe that. We believe that your body is a good thing made by God. It's corrupted by sin, and so therefore it dies, but it is going to be made new. And so, um, not to get into a whole other can of worms, but that's really one of the core questions of our culture right now is, is your body you, or is it just a thing that you inhabit? Right? And Christians fall on the side of, your body is, is you. Right? It's not an accident that you know, you're not a ghost in, in a random machine. Right? It's your, your soul and your body are what make you, you. Right? And God did all that intentionally. So in your, your guiding principle for how you should deal with your body when you die should be in line with that. Right? Um, that if it makes you really uncomfortable, the idea of cremation when it comes to God restoring your body, don't do it. But it's also not something we can impose some sort of like absolute rule about because the scriptures doesn't, don't really speak to that. Um, that's also not good. But you generally want to do something that'll be in the spirit of, this is my body, it's me, it's not just something I'm leaving behind, I'm ascending to a higher realm or whatever. Um, it's part of God's good creation that he is restoring in Christ. Um, so you should treat it like that. Okay, good, great questions. Um, thank you for that delightful segue. Okay. Um, so now back to the books that I brought, not the books that I did not. Uh, so today we're going to talk about what 
uh, Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper or the Sacrament of the Altar actually is. Uh, and a couple of things we're going to do is we're going to look at some of our confessional statements that, um, believe it or not, maybe you've never uh, read this book. You've been taught things from it. And when you became a member of this church, you said you believed this. Right? So this has statements of faith regarding all aspects of the Christian life, but also the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at a little bit of what's in there. Um, this is the question when you become a member that, do you hold to the writings of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in the small catechism? And then um, the, there are extra writings in here that we talk about. Um, that When I became a pastor, I had to promise. I had to take a, uh, a promise, an oath, to adhere to these in my capacity as a pastor in the Lutheran Church. Um, so we're going to start with the small catechism, which um, maybe it's been a while for some of you since you've, you've looked at that. Um, or, I'm sorry, we're not going to start there. We're going to start with the Bible first. And then we're going to go to the small catechism in the book of Concord. So I asked a few people uh, before class to look up some scripture passages so that they could be ready to read them in the class here. Uh, so Trish, can you go ahead and read your uh, thing from Matthew? This is Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take ye, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. And then 28 is for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, thank you. We got one from Mark 14. Yep, 22 through 24. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank all, they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said. All right, and then I've got Luke. 22, 19 to 20. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All right, thank you. So um, they all sounded kind of familiar but, uh, and similar. Those are what we call, what do we call those in the service? The words of institution, right? <laughs> Um, they're called that because they're Jesus' words, and it is when he instituted the sacrament of the altar, right? the Lord's Supper. Um, and so it's in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and then Paul writes about it as well in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, and just as a side note, if you'll look in your bulletin, if you brought it down with you, or just the next time you have one, if you go to the page 2, where we have our statement on communion, this, uh, these sections are what are referenced there. So we have the Matthew reference for the words of institution, but you could use Mark or Luke. And then we also have um, the reference to 1 Corinthians 11. So I'm going to have Dave read that. He's going to read verses 23 to 29. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take heed, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. 
After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Okay. So, so if we were to describe, like you, that's all you've heard so far about the Lord's Supper. Forget everything else you know. Just what we've just heard read there in the three gospel accounts and then in 1 Corinthians 11 with Paul. How would you describe the supper? What is it? If I asked you, what is it? What are some of the things you might say? The body and blood of Christ. The body and blood of Christ. Okay. So Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, right? Um, what else? Okay, so we need to do this in remembrance, right? So there's that element as well. So this, as we mentioned, I think last week is the first time that Jesus has asked his disciples to repeatedly observe something, right? It's crucial that we see that he says, this is my body. He doesn't say, hey, this represents me. Right, so we, we would say that uh, if you take the simplest reading of the text without bringing in other things, Jesus says, this is my body, right? And so we believe that that's what he means. He doesn't say, this is like my body, this represents my body, this should remind you of the sacrifice of my body. Uh, and if you think that through, you have the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, speaking to his disciples, his sort of last testament, before his passion begins and the crucifixion happens. Why would he say something that he doesn't mean? Or why would Jesus do something that he would have to know would not be like clear? Right? And so you have to sort of assume all those things are not at least true in their obvious sense in order to read it any other way than it is. Right? So Luther had disagreements with other reformers about this. One of the more famous accountings is with Ulrich Zwingli, um, who we'll get to a little bit in uh, some of the Book of Concord stuff. But there's like a famous story they tell about when they meet. And they, they agreed on every point of the Christian faith except for this one. And the story goes that at some point during their conversation, Luther just etched the word is into the table and then stopped talking. Because that was the, that was the point of issue. Right? Is the is of Jesus here taken at his word? Or are we going to come up with some way to explain how this isn't what it appears to be? And really, until the Reformation, it was the de facto position of all the Christian church that it was. There really wasn't a lot of uh, disagreement about this until you get to the Enlightenment time um, after the Reform. So, um, okay, what else? So we got remembrance. This is my body. This is my blood. Yeah. Well, it can be ser it's serious and it can be an area of concern 
in light of what First Corinthians says. Okay, yeah. So Paul, but given what Paul's saying is like, there's a right way to do this, and there's a way that's not good, right? And it's not good because somebody else disapproves. It's not good because it's bad for you, the one who's taking it in a bad way, right? What does he say happens to you? Right, you're eating and drinking. Uh, the ESV, I think, would say judgment on yourself. The, the, the New King James says damnation upon yourself. That's not good, right? We don't want that. Right? Uh, that the, those verses are the basis for why we practice close communion. It's actually for our concern for the person that we know nothing about who may or may not know anything about communion. Because we don't want them to do that. right? And so um, that's... Our statement tries to, to, to communicate that, that we want you to be able to take communion. We want everyone to be able to take communion. It's great. But we want to we do it in a way that God says, because Paul informs us that if we do it unworthily, it's not good for us. Right? It's not the blessing it's intended to be. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, he gives some specific examples before those verses, uh, which I always kind of find fun to do with confirmation students because they can understand them. Um, he said that some of them were, were eating it all and not leaving it for others. So the image I give the students, and I'll give you as well, is imagine that there's somebody kneeling next to you at the kneeler, and the common cup comes around, and they just drain the whole sucker, and they don't leave it for you. There were people actually doing that. And part of it, Paul addresses, is because they were viewing it as a regular meal for nourishment. That's, and he's saying, that's not what it's for. Right? Uh, because then what happens? then the, the meal would actually be violative of the thing that Jesus just said about the kingdom of heaven in our gospel reading today. It wouldn't be a level thing for everyone. Um, and then, uh, so there are some, there's some really obvious ways, right, that would be incorrect. And so I was talking with a pastor about this one of the times I was preparing to talk about, you know, how do you talk about close communion in a way that people aren't going to get upset? Because right? it's, a, it's a sensitive issue for some people, as, as it should be. It's an important thing. Um, and the way that he said he goes about it is he says, do you think that you should give communion to somebody who, like, totally rejects Jesus? No. No? no? Okay, so we all agree then. There's a, there's a fence. There's a boundary. There's a rule, right? Now we just need to figure out what that rule is that is faithful to the Scripture. Right? And our confession is that we need to have a period of examination not only of how you understand your your need for it but also of your confession of faith in Jesus because as typically as with Lutherans we forgot the fun part when I asked you what is it like what is the supper there's a part and there's a big part that's great that we forgot and Luther really emphasizes this so we got the body and blood do this in remembrance <laughs> You could screw it up, and it would be bad for you. Forgiveness of sins. Yeah, you get some really great stuff, right? The forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. Right? The fruits of the cross. Which is the basis for why we want everyone to have it. Right? Like, I would love it if Paul had not said that. And he said, you can't screw it up. Everyone can have it. It's great. It's great for everyone. That made my life way easier, right? <laughs> but he did say that. He said it's an amazing blessing. It's a very powerful thing that God is giving you. And it is intended and can be a wonderful blessing, but it can also be a judgment. And so we take care of how we do it. 
So just I wanted to just start with the biblical text that we use for the basis for our confession of faith about communion to highlight what the text actually says, right, without all the extra outside stuff in there. Now, do you guys have any questions about the words of institution and what I said? Yeah. I just want, like, a deeper dive, like, into your mind. Like, what do you think of as you're, like, taking it in? Like, do you feel like there's, like, some application of have ingesting our Lord and Savior into us? Sure, like, sure. What do you do? It's a great question. So the question is, like, what are what are we supposed to, if I'm understanding correctly, like, how does the self-examination work? Like, what are we supposed to be thinking when we're receiving the Lord's yeah, Supper? like so, when you're up there. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so the self-examination is, is mainly to accomplish a couple of tasks. One is to acknowledge that you're a sinner in need of the grace of God. So first off, communion is not for perfect people. It's for sinners who need the forgiveness of Jesus. So you, you will laugh at this, but I actually had a young man at my previous church who I told him he didn't need to come to communion because he didn't believe that after he became a Christian that he sinned anymore. And so I said, well, you don't need communion Communion's for sinners, so it won't do anything for you. Now, I tried to convince him that that wasn't true, because I think that he still did sin, and that he still needed the forgiveness of Christ offered in the supper, but it's first and foremost for sinners. So, you should be coming up in light of your confession, right? So that's the reason in the service, your confession and the service of the word are prior to communion, is they, they share God's word with you, and they sort of till the soil of your heart, so to speak. Um, they remind you, either through the readings themselves or the preaching of the pastor, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of forgiveness, God is offering me forgiveness freely by grace through Jesus. That gets me ready to think about what's going on at the table. Right? So we start with, I'm a sinner in need of grace, God is bringing me grace through this gift, and he's not attaching like achievements or requirements for it as far as human accomplishments go. Um, it's just faith, right? And that's the key. That's the key thing here, right? So um, Luther will say, like all this stuff, Jesus says is for you, right? So you'll notice that when I give you the host, and when the elder says, "This is the blood of Jesus," it's shed for who? For you, right? Um, so communion is at at um, at the same time that it is a communal public act of worship. It's also deeply individual. It's God taking the great big objective work of salvation he did in Jesus and assuring you by applying it specifically to you. Um, So, sinner, in need of grace, grace is being given in Jesus, and it's for me. That's essentially what your self-examination should do. The last part of the self-examination is, do you really believe this is the body and blood of Jesus that gives you these things? Because the alternative thoughts are, uh, it is a remembrance, merely a remembrance of what Jesus did. So there was only the event of the crucifixion 2,000 years ago, and that's, that is done. And by engaging in the supper, you're just remembering and meditating on that fact. Okay? Um, we, would, we echo the words of Paul, which I think we're, we're using in our third Sunday service, which is that by taking this, you're participants in the sacrifice of Christ. That it's it's an ongoing thing being given through the supper. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. Any other questions before we look? Yeah. Yeah. When people have the 
you know, the wrong views on you know, who can commune or what communion means, is it difficult to tell them, well, you're not going to be able to commune with us? It depends. So if all the pastor has to work with is a two-minute conversation before the service and he's never met them, it's very difficult because there's a lot of particulars to people's circumstances. So we actually, I actually had an incident regarding this here, and as a result, the elders and I spoke, and we changed our statement to encourage people that it's their first time visiting to not take communion. Because, one, it's not the urgent sort of thing where if they don't get it this week and they die on Tuesday, we, we've totally screwed them over and they're now in hell. That's not the way that works, right? Um, so there isn't, there isn't a need for that kind of urgency to sort of push us into a position where we're just going to end up fighting about something or misunderstanding something. Um, the second reason it might be difficult is in our synod, I'll just be honest, there are a lot of churches that do not actually carry out this teaching. And so um, the issue that I'm thinking of, that was one of the main defenses as to why they thought I was wrong. It's because they went to LCMS churches and they said our pastors never cared about any of this stuff. And I was forced to say, well, I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, they're supposed to. Because right? um, it was a big point of disagreement in the previous generation and a half or so, um, whether or not this was like a Christian practice. Um, so so it, is, it is difficult because you're trying to simultaneously express that, like, I can't just give this to you on your own terms necessarily because the Bible gives us instruction that it can't be done incorrectly to your detriment, but also that I really would love for you to be taking communion with us, right? And so that's kind of a difficult thing to express, particularly in our culture where people just think they should be allowed to have whatever they want, right? Because if you, if you couch that sort of interaction in any other context, everyone would agree that it's completely inappropriate. So the intimacy of communion, I think I shared with, I don't know if it was in the class or with somebody, that it would be like you invite someone over for dinner and then they want to sleep in your bedroom with you that night. Yeah. Like that's just not the way it's going to work, right? Um, I don't mean sexually, I mean like just in your room. Right? Um, because your room is a more intimate place than your dining room is. And you invited them over for a specific purpose. So when the church invites people to come into the church, it has a it has a pathway and a process for a reason. So if the first thing that that person is going to do is they're going to say, well, screw your process and I don't care about your reasons, then we're on the wrong path all the way from the beginning. Because what communion is and what pastors try to do is I'm doing my best to try and do this faithfully for your benefit, including the person I just met five minutes ago. And if the way that I get treated is that I have some ulterior motive that I don't really want them to have this, there's other spiritual issues going on there about their understanding of the Lord's Supper. They shouldn't be doing right. it anyway. Huh? They're not ready to do it anyway. Right, right. They, their self-examination needs some work just in general because... They feel entitled to something that's given by grace, which that's a problem. Because then, doesn't matter where you're going, you're going to think it belongs to you by virtue of what? Right. And that's not what it is. Right. It's a gracious invitation from a loving God 
giving you something you don't deserve. And that should always be kind of the, the ethos by which you approach it. Because then you approach it in a spirit of gratitude, and you actually receive it for what it is, as opposed to just assuming that it should belong to you. Right? Um, so those are, they can be difficult situations, and sometimes I just can't do anything about that because I'm doing my best to be compassionate and patient and understanding. And they have just had a life experience where nobody ever had that conversation with them, and it's just going to be me no matter what I say. So usually when I teach on this, I, I implore the congregation, because um, some of the most difficult situations are relatives of members. Because sometimes then the member will take it personally that I don't give their relative communion, even though their relative goes to a Baptist church or something. Right? Um, so <clears throat> I encourage members to, like, if you're not comfortable having that conversation, that's okay. It's not your responsibility to have that conversation. It's mine. And so I just ask for your help in that by having them seek me out. Right? So if you know they're coming in, have them give me a call um, if you know in advance. Or have them come early to church and come and find me and ask me specifically about it. Right? Because that saves both me and them potential awkward situations. And it's also the sort of thing where after the fact, in this particular instance I'm thinking of, I had a conversation with them, and when I found out some of the other circumstances or uh, details of their circumstance, I offered to commune them. And then they said no, which I also didn't understand. <laughs> like, it was so amazing, and you were making such a fuss about it, then I offered it to you, and then you don't want it. Then I don't, you know. So um, I, just, I can only do so much. Um, so that so I usually ask like if you're bringing a friend or a family member, even if they used to be a member here and now they're going to another church that doesn't share a confession of faith, we we don't commune with them because they don't share that intimacy of a common confession with us. That doesn't mean that we're condemning them to hell. It just means that they can't come to communion here unless they want. If they want to, then we can start that process, and it doesn't take very long. Um, some of the newer members have gone through this with me. I don't want to make you wait all the way till next year if we have our new member Sunday in February and then you show up for your first visit in, in March. And then I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to make you wait a whole year. I'm not going to do that. Okay? Um, I'll meet with you because some of this is pastoral discretion. But I'm going to have to give an account to God about the way I'm handling the fruits of his son's sacrifice. So however awkward a situation might be, it's far less frightening to me than having to explain to God why I just sort of threw his son's body and blood all over the place without any care in the world. Okay? Yeah? What do you do if someone comes to the altar rail and you know the situation? So if we haven't spoken and it's the first time they're here, I typically say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So if I haven't had a conversation with you and I just spent the whole service talking about how amazing it is, you know, I'm going to leave some room there for the Holy Spirit to do his thing outside of our formal process. But that's typically why I say, I'm starting to say now, if it's your first time with us today, we ask that you refrain from receiving communion. We still invite you forward for a blessing, and I would love to talk to you after the service about it. Um, if somebody I've had a conversation with and told them that they can't have communion with us and they still come up and expect it, if they put their hands up, I just give them a blessing and move on. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I think in the past, Pastor Brennan did the last thing. He did the common cup instead of the host. 
That's why I chose to do the host because then the elder who's following behind me can see if I've given somebody something or not. Because if if the elder is going first, he may not have been part of that conversation. He may not know the situation with this person, and then he's left like maybe he he'll be like, well, this person clearly has no idea what they're doing because they didn't put their hands out. They're looking around trying to figure out what everybody else is doing, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Right? I don't want to put them in that situation, so I go first so that they can see like if I give them the host, they can trust that I've had a conversation with them, or uh, you know, then that's on me. Yeah. Um, um, are there circumstances where you should self-exclude? You, you've done your own examination before the service, and you find yourself lacking. And sure. You've, you know, you've confessed, you've heard the absolution, but still not feeling like I should be in his presence. Sure. So the question is, are there times where you should self-exclude? So you do your self-examination, and you find that you feel like you shouldn't go. First off, I want you to seriously examine your reasoning for why you think you shouldn't go. If it's on the realm of I'm so sinful, it's an automatically, I mean, that's what's qualifying you to go. It's not what's disqualifying you, right? Um, but if you find yourself in a place where you don't think you need forgiveness, then you shouldn't go because that's what's being given. Um, or if you're having serious doubts about the confession of your faith here at the church. So like if you're really worried about, like, I don't know if I agree with this, you're not, um, you don't, you're not required to go to communion ever. It's something that I strongly encourage because it's of utmost benefit to you. Um, but if there, you know, you're not going to be like wrong if you decide for whatever reason you're feeling like you shouldn't go today and then you find out later, well, actually, the things that you think barred you from communion are the things that are precisely that are given to people precisely for those reasons. It's not like, oh my goodness, I made a terrible mistake. You missed out on a great meal, but there'll be another one. Right? Uh, so generally in my experience, for when I've talked to people who normally take communion and for whatever reason on Sunday, just by the way, if you do that and you normally take communion, I'm probably going to come talk to you. It's going to be like, hmm, that was weird. Something's probably going on there. I should talk to them. Uh, and almost all the time, it's almost every time I've had to do that, it's somebody who feels like they're too terrible of a person to be a communion. No such person exists, right? Um, because communion is for terrible people. It's a grace-filled gift of forgiveness for the sinner. So sins never disqualify you. Lack of faith in, like, if you find that you just don't believe the promises anymore, then you shouldn't come. And you should talk to me. Because I would want to talk to you about that. Is that kind of... Okay. There's all kinds of weird reasons you could come up for self-excluding, so I'm just going to address the one that's really the only one I've ever encountered, actually, which is when people are overwhelmed with guilt about something or they just feel like they're unworthy. Yeah. Well, I've heard um, that sometimes if, they, if a pastor knows there's a dispute between two members of the that they choose not to give them communion, so they have worked it out. Okay, so, man, maybe you haven't read the Book of Concord in a while, but you guys are hitting on the things that it talks about. <laughs> um, so the question was um, that you've heard of instances where the, if the pastor knows about a dispute between two members or a member and a non-member, 
and they decide to uh, bar the member from communion for the time of the dispute. Um, that is a thing. That's part of the office of the keys. When Jesus talks to his disciples, he says to them, whatever you bind on, on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven, which is essentially, I've given you the authority to forgive the sins of repentant sinners. Right? So the way I usually tell this to you guys is, I'm the king's messenger, and he's given me a specific authority to say a specific thing. So even if you're, you come to me and you're not repentant, I can't forgive your sins because I don't have the authority to forgive unrepentant sins. It's just something I can't do even if I want to. So if somebody is in a sin of unrepentance, particularly if it's public, so uh, probably the most common example would be, uh, let's say um, we have a, a, a younger member of our congregation who's in his 20s and he and his girlfriend are living together and they're not married. That would be an example of where I would have to have a conversation with them and I would implore them to separate because they're not married. And, um, and if they don't do that, then a minor ban can be put in place for communion. Right? Because one of the things that happens when you're at communion is you're witnessing about what? The death and resurrection of Jesus, right? Paul says we proclaim his death until he comes. Right? And so... If people who are coming to that proclamation are actively living in ways that violate the word of God, they're harming the witness of Christ. And then that creates confusion. Right? And most people, they think, of it in, they, they think of it in terms of a lay person doing this, but imagine a pastor doing it, and you can kind of see the, 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 thing, the situation that's trying to be avoided. Right? So imagine that, uh, that I step out on Marissa and I'm living with another woman while we're still married, and... I still preach at your church and I still administer the sacraments and join you at the table. What is that going to do for you? Huh? Well, some people will probably leave the church, the specific congregation at least. It's also just going to, at the very least, it's going to be very confusing. Right? Um, because my public witness is contradicting itself. Right? All right, and so pastors have been given the authority, along with the congregations, the pastors hardly ever do this sort of thing just totally on their own. They could if they need to, but typically it's in Congress with the congregation, and, and it's usually addressed by a number of people. Um, and the goal of it is always what? To, to shame them and make them feel terrible? No. Yes, that's the goal, right? <laughs> no, bring them back to... The goal is repentance, right? Because, because the goal is we want them to be able to come to the table with us again. Right. right? Um, and so um, my dad was a pastor for almost 30 years, and I think he did that twice. It's pretty rare. Because it's, it's not so much like if I, if I become aware of a, like a spat between two members and they're both unrepentant about the wrong they've done or refusing to forgive somebody who's apologized, then I may have to have a conversation between them and as long as they remain in that. But typically it's more of a public thing because the concern is about the witness of the church about Jesus. So if you are, um, this, well, I, mean, I suppose it does still happen today. Um, let's say that one of our members, uh, he becomes a new member and then a month or a year later we find out, well, he's actually a, um, a gang leader that runs a brothel in Pittsburgh. As if being a gang leader wasn't enough. Right. 
I was trying to, I was trying to think of who the most likely person to actually run something like that would be. But yes. also a Browns fan. <laughs> Well, so, yeah, to Mike's point, being a gang member would be enough. But any sort of, like, you're living out a public persona that is against the teaching of the church, and you're doing it in a way that is unrepentant. That's different from somebody, let's say, like, we can use homosexuality as an example here. Like, I have somebody who's just full-on on that lifestyle. They're going to get married. They think there's nothing wrong with it. They think the church is wrong about it, right? That's somebody I would have to ban from communion. As opposed to somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, they they fall prey to that temptation, but it's something that they don't think is right, and they're doing their best to get. Then they're in the same boat as everybody else here, right? Because it isn't like, well, you've got five tries on this one sin, and if you do it more than five times, that means you're unrepentant. That's not how it works, right? Um, it's the the posture. And if you tell me that, unless you have a visible lifestyle choice that I can like see, I'll believe you. Right? So if you're if you come to me and tell me, Pastor, I, I have a, a problem with an addiction to porn or I have same sex attraction that I'm I'm really struggling with and, and working on and, and trying to you know commend that to the Lord and, and seek his guidance, I'm gonna believe you. Right? Unless there's a preponderance of evidence to the contrary. Right? Now fortunately that doesn't come up very often. But it is something that, that we do. Pastor? Yeah. I have to admit, I'm a Oh, well, I, know I wasn't going to do this to you in public, Ron, but that means that I can't commune you until you give up your leadership role and, and leave the game. We have a relative that's a de another denomination. Yeah. Catholic Church. And they're good Christians. They go to church every Sunday. Sure. They follow everything. And they come here, so the only thing that would prevent them from taking communion are the sacraments. Is that right? Or? So, the use Catholic is maybe not a great example because the Catholic probably wouldn't even expect to or ask to take communion. The Catholic probably wouldn't even ask you or expect to take communion at your church. The Catholics that I know would. They're just really? Right. <laughs> okay. Well, either way, it doesn't really matter what denomination it is. Um, that for us. It's the same reason that I can't go preach a sermon at their church is the same reason that they, they don't have communion with us. Because okay. they don't, like, by having communion with us, they share our public confession of faith. Yeah. Right? And if they, they go to a Baptist church or a Catholic church, they, they don't. Right? So if I know they're coming to church here, I, I can just tell them that go up and put the hand yep. across. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and you can even encourage them, like, if, they, if they're curious as to why... Or, yeah. or they have any issues with it, you can always, you know, send them to me. Yeah. No, I mean, essentially, you're, well, because I, I would say it isn't, it's your obligation to be a faithful witness to Christ. It's not necessarily your obligation to, like, that's part of the vocational responsibilities I have as a pastor. Because uh, you're not going to be held accountable if your pastor handles the gifts of Christ unfaithfully. He will. And that's the same reason right. why I go to a church like that. I should Correct. Well, and the public aspect of that is, is really helpful for understanding this because, like, one of the common defenses I hear from, um, from Christians in America is, well, I know what's happening. Right? Even, if, if, even if I disagree with what they say it is, I know what it is, so it doesn't matter. Right? Right. But that's not true. Right? Um, because nobody else knows what you think you know. 
And so I usually ask people, is, communi is communion meaningful or meaningless? Okay. Meaningful, right? I haven't had anybody yet tell me it's meaningless. Because um, presumably they probably wouldn't be here listening to this. They did, right? Um, and do other people see you do it or not? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you do, right? So if it, if it has meaning and it's public, it communicates something, right? Regardless of what you want it to communicate, it communicates something. Mm -hmm. And so our understanding is, this is a, com is a common act of public confession witnessing to the death and resurrection of Jesus and the sacrament given here. Right? If you don't agree with us, then, then you're not going to make that confession. Right? Um, so in another way, you could say that's us looking out for you. We're basically saying, like, we don't want you to publicly state something that you don't actually believe. Because that's what you would be doing if you came up here. Not to mention the consequences in 1 Corinthians 11 if they come from a tradition where they they don't think it's the body and blood of Jesus. Then even worse things happen. Right. So I could see the, say there's a funeral yep. and you have communion. I wouldn't do that okay. for this reason. Okay, yeah, that was what I was going to say because so many people are coming there. Yeah. yeah. It, so in our churches, you typically don't do communion at funerals because of this, right? Um, and you may have gone to a church where they do it, but yeah. typically the churches that do it, they have no rules on, on who gets it. So everybody can come. Um, so if it's a situation where like a, it's a family and they just kept it with the family and the family is all Lutheran, you know, I could maybe make an exception there because it's mainly to avoid potential, potential harm for somebody who doesn't share our, our confession. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and just to comment on that because I just attended a Catholic funeral for my, my grandmother and it was, it was kind of funny because relatively small service, but the priest actually ask that that people that are not catholic don't just don't bother coming up you know it right which actually was kind of smart because usually people go up and some are a little confused yeah. and then you yeah. know some get the blessing but you know I hate to say you know a relatively small portion of the crowd so it's kind of an interesting you know and it's not that everybody's not christian right but i think people have you know different right. denominations and yeah. so. and that's an important point to make yeah. is when we turn somebody away from communion here what we're not saying is you're not a Christian and you're not going to heaven. That's not what we're saying, right? Um, what we're saying is, like, you don't share our confession of faith about communion. I don't know what you believe about communion. The Bible says that there are ways that you can do this that are detrimental to you. So I'm going to have a process for figuring that out for your benefit. And I want that process to happen because I want you to take communion. Yeah. That's a good question. If you have a non-denominational relative, is it the same? Um, yes, for, for practical purposes, because non-denominational churches are pretty much a denomination. Um, they have some, vari some variation, but not a lot. Um, there are some sort of jokes you can find on the internet where like, you have a non-denominational church and then somebody blows on it and it flies away and it's a Baptist church behind it, because uh, most of them have Baptist church roots. Uh, so they're pretty similar to the Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, so I'm, I'm not aware of, I'm sure there might be some, I'm not aware of any church that calls itself non-denominational that actually believes in the real presence in communion. Because um, most of them only celebrate communion once a month, four times a year, or something like that. Um, so in general, if you're unsure, because you know, unless you're interested in this stuff, you may not even necessarily know what, 
the church that your relative comes from thinks about communion, and they might not know. You might ask me, like, I don't know, I've never thought about that. Especially if they come from a church where there's no distinction made between who should come up and who shouldn't. Because then you can just, oh, we like the people at this church. The pastor was really nice, and we've just been coming there, and we've been doing that for 20 years. And I don't know, I've never really thought about that. Um, but I think they'll probably have some inkling. But you can always refer them to me. You know, I would, that's a, a kind of phone call I'd love to get. I'd rather talk about it with somebody on the phone or in person in a situation where I don't have to come to a, some decision in three minutes before a service starts. Um, so, yeah. Good question. Um, okay. Well, I'm just going to read parts of the small catechism here. Um, we're not going to get to the Book of Concord today, which I know you're super bummed about. Um, so, um, so, the small catechism is what we teach in confirmation class um, before the young people in our congregation come to communion, right? Now, that's another angle you can think about this with, the massive disservice you do to the youth of our congregation when you let somebody just have communion without any sort of process. Why are you requiring that of your children? Because okay. um, adults don't magically understand the Lord's Supper better than kids do. Sometimes the kids understand it better than the adults. You tell them it's really the body, blood of Jesus, and they go, no, that's gross. And it's the adults who are like, well, it's not really the blood of Jesus. It's if you don't, they come up with all the arguments. Right? Okay, so this is what the small catechism says. What is the sacrament of the altar? It is the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ under the bread and wine instituted by Christ himself for us Christians to eat and to drink. Okay, So true body and blood, real presence, under the bread and wine, we don't claim to understand how it works. So if you're looking for a philosophical explanation as to how it's body and blood and yet it tastes like bread and wine, you can go to the Catholic Church for that. We don't, we don't, we just know it's there, it's present, it's really there, don't know how it works. So when he says under the bread and wine, he doesn't mean like physically underneath it. So if you turn your wafer over, you're going to have a bloody piece of flesh underneath or anything like that. It's that it's there, it's, it's communicated, transmitted to us through the means of body, or bread and wine, because he said this. Right. Somebody had something here? I was just going to say, that's, that's the difference between us and the Catholic Church right there. Yes. Right? Yep. We just, we don't know how, and they claim some reason. Yeah, so they'll, they're, they believe in transubstantiation, which is a philosophical theory that claims that what happens when the priest speaks the words of institution is the underlying substance of the bread and wine changes, but none of its attributes do, which is why it looks, tastes, and smells like bread and wine. And we say, how the heck do you know that? Right? We know it's there, but I'm not going to pretend like I can explain to you how it works. Right? I'm just thinking that guy, you know, who was God-man, died on the cross and rose from the dead, this is pretty small potatoes for him, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, um, okay. where is this written? So this is the part we already read, right? The... Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and St. Paul write, and then it, it just repeats the words of institution. Um, what is the benefit of this eating and drinking? These words, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, show us that in the sacrament forgiveness of sins, life and salvation are given us through these words. For where there is forgiveness of sins, there is also life and salvation. How can bodily eating and drinking do such great things? Certainly not just eating and drinking does these things, but the words written here, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. These words, along with the bodily eating and drinking, are the main thing in the sacrament. 
Whoever believes these words has exactly what they say, forgiveness of sins. Who receives this sacrament worthily? Fasting and bodily preparation are certainly fine outward training. But that person is truly worthy and well prepared who has faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. But anyone who does not believe these words or doubts them is unworthy and unprepared for the words for you require all hearts to believe. So you can see the theme for Luther here is faith in the words that Christ gives to institute this sacrament. So kind of a, a succinct answer to your question is if you don't believe in the promise being given, you shouldn't come. Then you're going to be in the situation that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 11. Because you're not discerning the body and the blood. You don't believe they're there. You don't see them. You don't believe them. You don't believe in the promises that come as a result of them. Because right? we believe this is more than just like, I'm thinking about Jesus and that's good. But it's actually Jesus giving us the fruits of his cross. Right? We are participants in his sacrifice. So uh, a cool way to think about this is we're described as, <clears throat> in Christ, we're described as the priesthood of all believers. Do you know what the priests would do when sacrifices were offered on behalf of the people? They'd kill the animals. The priests were the ones that had killed the animals. Yep. Then what did they do with the sin offering? It was burnt, right? And then there was a portion that they ate. Because the priests had no way of generating any sort of revenue or livestock or food for themselves. Right? Now that we are the priesthood of all believers in Christ, Jesus is the portion of the sacrifice for sin that is for us. And so we consume the sacrifice. And thereby becoming participants in the fruits of the cross. Forgiveness, life, and salvation. So for us, it's in that visceral, physical nature of the sacrament is important. Because that part of what defines what it is. It is a thing that works forgiveness, life, and salvation through the sacrifice of Christ that is applied to you specifically because the fruits of that very cross are given to you. All right. Any last questions before we close? Is that is that clock correct back there? It's it's oh, okay, okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wanted to share, you know, the reading from from John. So, um, because this is where it seems that he's explaining what's going to happen with communion, right? Because after uh, you ever heard, heard chapter six? Cha yeah, yeah, yeah. So after, I think you're the way you like to describe is he. They want to make him the bread king, right? After the yeah. feeding of, yeah. of the five thousand. And, and then, it, you know, so it's the popularity is, is, is reaching its zenith, right? And then he says, okay, hold on, hold on. And he starts telling them about this, this body and blood. And, and he says, um, you know, this, I am the living bread. Uh, the bread. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And it starts this big disagreement. And they say that, you know, they begin to argue and said, how can this man give us flesh to eat? And so it's, it's an interesting read, you know, but... He says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So really strong words, right? And he's telling us in advance, and he's, 
Right. And, and it is in a way that is divisive, right? I mean, right. It's clear the time, that yeah. the people listening understand that literally the way he says right. it. And it, it's actually also where we get the statement before the gospel that we have sometimes in the church here where, um, where he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Because so many people leave following Jesus after that. He turns to the 12 and says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter's response is, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? Um, and so this isn't meant to be the introductory subject you broach with somebody who's thinking about Christianity. Right? Um, it's one of the harder truths um, and one of the more difficult things to grasp because it's impossible to understand outside of faith. Right? Yeah, thank you. Any other questions, thoughts, before we close? Okay, just a reminder then. Remember, not just on this topic, but all the worship stuff we've covered or even something I've forgotten or we just didn't cover in the class. If you have a question about that, anything in the worship service, physical objects in the room upstairs, why we do something, why we don't do something, two classes from now, our last class, I want you to have those questions ready. We're going to do, it's just going to be question and answer. So if you guys show up with no questions, you won't have anything to talk about. So um, these, are, these are those questions you're afraid to ask. If you want to submit it to me anonymously because you don't want your name attached to the question, that's fine too. Um, I've taken a, a promise not to, to wrap people's secrets to other people, so your secret's safe with me. Um, but uh, also, if you just want to write it down and, and, and share it in the class, uh, that way that's fine as well. <clears throat> but that's mainly because I don't want you to observe something every week or every month that you have this thought of, well, what's that for? Or why do we do that? Or why don't we do this? Or why is that lit today and it's not lit, wasn't lit last week? I don't want you to have those thoughts just bouncing around in your head. So if you have any of those, bring them to last class, um, and we'll, I'll do my best to answer them if there are answers for them. All right? Okay, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.